Anyway, well, let's uh, begin in prayer. Father, I just thank you for those who are here. I thank you for their hearts. Thank you for those who are not here. I ask that you bless their time with family uh, this morning. Those who are sick, I ask that you be with them and minister your healing. Uh, take this time, speak to our hearts, and illumine those cloudy places in us that are not quite struck yet by your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you fan a flame in us in new ways uh, this day. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> what I want to do in, uh, we'll start in Matthew 8. That's where we're going to uh, begin our trek today. Um, I'm wanting to look at Christ in the context of the revolutionary uh, as a wind walker. And he calls you and me to be wind walkers as well. And what this is about, uh, actually, I'll, I'll flip over, holding my place in Matthew 8, to John 3. This is what Christ modeled for us. Hello, come on in. We're just getting started. We have been diverging. <laughs> so... We are in John 3, but we'll land more uh, strongly in Matthew 8. Um, but in John 3, uh, Christ speaks to uh, Nicodemus about having to be born again. And in the context of uh, that being uh, that second birth of the Spirit as opposed to of the flesh, he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from where it has come or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Uh, he has called you and me into a whole new order of man, uh, an order that understands the dimensions and the components of second birth, that it is a stamp on us, not just in our soul, but from our spirit that marks us as uniquely different. And one of the unique markings we should carry within us is that of going with the wind. Uh, especially in our culture, this is very, very difficult to do. And it's something that you and I have to figure out how to how to work that out and make ourselves so available to the Holy Spirit that whether we're in a structured, regimented uh, situation or not, we still are moved by His Spirit. If not physically, emotionally. If not emotionally, relationally. So that we move and feel the nudges of the Holy Spirit in our soul and we move accordingly to that in maybe words that we speak, thoughts that we have, the way in which we listen, the way in which we see. We've been looking at how Christ's focus changed, uh, uh, governed how he saw. And how he saw was so uniquely different from the world, and it is this seeing that he asked you and me to have. And it is also a walking that he asked you and me to embark upon. 
And so <clears throat> the fact that he gives this guidance to us in John 3 suggests that he modeled that out for us. And so we began in Matthew 8 to look at that modeling, at what his ministry looked like. Uh, I'm going to read quite a bit here in Matthew 8, and I want you to, I want you to look at, uh, and this is, this is a, in the very beginning stages of his ministry. It is before he called his apostles. Um, but at the very beginning, we see the mark of his mission and the mark of his purpose uh, in how, he, how it was fulfilled. So he's leaving the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 8. And great multitudes followed him from off the mountain. In other words, they were so struck by what he had said. They followed him. He didn't ask them to, they just did, which speaks to the thirst and the hunger of their spirit. They were hungering after something that he had, thirsting after something they did not necessarily fully know, but they knew they found it in him. And behold, there came a leper. Notice the pattern here. Notice where he's headed and what the pattern is, what uh, between him coming off the Sermon uh, of the Mountain at the Sermon on the Mount and going to his destination. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See that you tell no man, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer the gift <clears throat> that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, and grievously tormented. Jesus says, I will come to him. I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and <clears throat> to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard this. He marveled at his faith. And I'm going to go on down to verse 13. Jesus said unto him, to the centurion, go your way as you have believed, so be it uh, done unto you. And his servant was healed in the same hour. And when Jesus was come to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid uh, in bed and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. Elsewhere we know that they sat down to eat there. And when evening was come, they brought many unto him that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, um, of him taking our, our infirmities and sicknesses and weaknesses upon him. Um, and when Jesus saw the great multitude about him, he gave commandment to depart to the other side. They depart to the other side. Uh, there is a storm. And this is the, where that famous uh, line that we always know from Christ where he says, peace be still, and his, his words spoke peace to the storm. And then they get to the other side, and there is a demoniac, a man possessed of a thousand demons, and Christ casts them out. That's the entire chapter 8. What strikes you about at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, how his ministry begins to unfold. 
What strikes you about that? What were some of the points that struck you as I read this? Uh, yes, it is about power and authority. Now, I, I think there is so much that I don't yet understand about authority here, but the centurion did. He understood that the healing of his servant had to do with authority. And so when Christ took his 12 and sent them out, he, he gave them power. That word meant also authority to cast out demons. Authority and power to heal the sick, which suggests that sickness has a spiritual component to it uh, of the prince of this world. It suggests that. Um, he, ga uh, he gave them power and authority. Authority and power here are synonymous. They're Siamese twins. Uh, to raise the dead. So, yes, it was about uh, authority. What else? Well, in each, if you go into each situation, there's a feeding <coughs> of that person asking to be healed. Every situation you're trying yes. to heal me, heal me, heal me. A petition. There's only one or two times where we see that Christ went and healed someone who did not ask for it. The rest of it is that there was a petition. There was a, there was a coming to him. Where was he headed, by the way, in chapter 8? What was his destination? Peter's house. Peter's house. So en route to Peter's house, en route to his goal, life happened. His ministry unfolded. He was interrupted. You know, I, I go the straight line. And then these forces, these needs intruded into that straight line. And one of the things that strikes me about the centurion particularly is that Christ is headed to Peter's house. And the centurion said, I have a servant at home grievously tormented. And what was Christ's response? I'll go there. I'll go there. His destination was not his purpose. His purpose was in meeting the needs of whatever intruded into his, his plan of destination, his trajectory. His purpose was not contained there. It was contained in the life that happened and came across his path as he went. And he was not constrained by the goal there. He was constrained by the need. Ooh, what a lesson for us. I mean, we are so goal-oriented and goal-driven in this culture. We are so organized, so structured. I, what other society in human history has had a planner? You know? <laughs> There's planners all over the place. There's calendars all over the place. And, and, you know, the calendar for the Mayan and the Aztec was to determine just time. You didn't see them having written on their sundials, 
you know, must go and do this, 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 and this. You, you just don't see that. Our culture has that one. We have, we have uh, capped the well on that and found the well both. I mean, we own it. So, guided him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I would say that. And yet, yes, based upon needs, based upon what points he needed to make with the Pharisees, based upon doctrine in, in the sense of what God was about and how God was so misconstrued by the church leaders. And so it, uh, uh, someone would come and, and ask him um, a question and he would speak and teach. He would admonish, correct. In some places, he would get in the faces of the Pharisees like we read last, last week. Woe unto you, Pharisees. So he was in their face. But it was based upon the deep need that, he was, that governed him. And that, that understanding of that need came from his father. If you come over to John 5, we've looked at this before, but we need to, we need to stitch this in. Uh, to the fabric of what we're looking at today. In uh, John 5, uh, verse 19, Jesus said unto them, uh, Verily I say unto you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, he does. For what things soever he does, those things does the Son likewise. In other words, Jesus... We looked last week at, and week before, at how, what Jesus saw. And his focus governed what he saw and who he saw and how he saw. Well, his focus was so on his father that the originating vision was in God the Father. What he saw his father do, he did, which suggests that God the Father was not just somehow on the throne in heaven, but that he was, his spirit was moving out there in the community in which Jesus moved. And when Jesus saw the spirit of his Father out there before him, Christ went to that and met his Father's spirit there. That's the suggestion here. That's the implication. It's, it's tucked away in subtleties, but it's there. That when I when I saw that, I mean, how many hundreds of times have I read this scripture? And about two years ago, I saw it with new eyes. It was like, oh, he is meeting. His father is active here. Christ was not working in a spiritual vacuum. His father was active there, and he saw in the spirit realm in ways that you and I can't comprehend what that means. His father's movement, his father's stirring out there, and he went to it. Um, he saw the hidden realm and the hidden kingdom. And he asked us to begin to develop that vision as well. Um, but so these random things, these circumstances that governed him, as you've said, uh, he saw God in it. 
they never distracted him from what he had to do. That's why he arrived in Jerusalem in the last week of his life exactly on time. So he did have a calendar. He did have an agenda. And he, he came to Jerusalem three times a year to observe all the holy feasts as, as he had been uh, as, as, the Jewish, uh, as part of the Jewish community. So though there were interruptions, they never kept him from what was important for him to keep. And those things that were important for him to keep uh, governed his walk. Uh, in Luke 9, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was on the last leg, and that's in Luke 9. Luke has, what, 23 chapters in it. And in Luke 9, he is headed toward Jerusalem for his, his moment of uh, destiny. Uh, so that setting of his face, I think, was because he saw his father out before him guiding him, and he and his father in communion set the time. So then he began to have a very pointed trajectory but it was still interrupted over and over again as he went. It is a matter of trust and reliance upon the Lord. And, and listening to his inner voice and not your own oughtness. You know, I, I need to get this done. I need to do this. Our own efficiency, God, that we worship. I, I have a feeling there's some sort of demon of efficiency <laughs> that rules this country. <laughs> and that, that makes us more rigid and, and because we, I've got to get something done here. I've got to feel productive. And productive, productivity with Christ was whom he touched. It, it looked different. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And, and this is one of our great challenges in, in, in bearing the mark of Christ on our lives so that people see us as a different people. Marking out a meandering path that still carries with it purpose and meaning is the task. It goes against all what? Rational thinking, especially American thinking. It goes against all rational thinking. It sure does. And it goes against the constraints and the requirements of our jobs sometimes. So that's where we have to be yielded and surrendered and listen to the Holy Spirit's nudging and just go with it. Yes. That's an, <clears throat> that's an excellent point. And that's why there were these places where he did need to be at a certain place on time, and he got there, and he didn't let those things that were true distractions distract him. And I think it's because he trusted. The Father wants me there at a certain time. He'll get me there. Yeah. Yeah. If I am walking, yielded. Exactly. And, it'll get, and we will have discernment on where we need to go and how we need to go and when. 
we, we will have discernment on when to say yes and when to say no. Yes, Art. <laughs> oh, that is such a good example because by all calculations he appeared to be woefully late how could you have done this I mean it's not like you didn't know Jesus we sent word to you yeah but he was I love what you said he, he had it, it, it and he wasn't late <clears throat> though by every human calibration he was but he wasn't and that's that reliance upon I'm sure the father told him wait <clears throat> and then when he wept before he went to the tomb to raise him the question is why is he weeping he's getting ready to ra ra raise him up <clears throat> I think he was weeping because of the pain that his messianic purpose brought his to his friends i think he was weeping because of their grief and their pain because they didn't understand and they had been through so much pain <clears throat> because of him and he had to delay because of his call it was to be a picture of resurrection to help people more emphatically believe in his own resurrection that would be coming a few days hence. There was a greater purpose. Did you? Well, and I think it's interesting too because I look at this and think, if it's me, my goal would be to get to Peter's house. And yet, you know, he had all these interruptions and inconveniences really, mm -hmm. but yet look at look at how it changed those people's lives forever. So yes. the importance of getting to <clears throat> wasn't as important as those interruptions and those inconveniences because those no. lives will never be the same again. And I guess that's how I need to look at inconveniences and people that are brought into my life, not as, okay, now i got to spend, you know. <laughs> yes. Delaying me even more. And so with the time ticking in, in the back of your head, I need to get over here. And so I'll, I'll, I'll be here as much as I can, then I have to go. You never hear Christ saying, I have to go. <laughs> That's absurd, huh? <laughs> well, yes. And, and if we're particularly, you know, left brain type A personality, we will be wrapped up in that. Uh, but we're all wrapped up in it. Whether I mean, whether we're, you know, type B and left brainless, you know, <laughs> which is me. Um, it, we're still wrapped up in it. it. It's just some not quite as tightly as others. But our wiring will will create that, and and our culture certainly uh, creates that. And this is a real challenge, and it's something that you and I need if we're going to if we're going to answer the call to follow. We don't have to do any of this if we're just going to believe because we have our ticket and we can ride the caboose, which they no longer have on trains, by the way, but we can ride the caboose <laughs> to heaven. 
um, we, can, we can do that if we believe, but if we're going to follow him, and if we're answering a call, if, we're, if, if when he, he stood there on the Mount of Ascension, and he gave the Great Commission, not just to the disciples, but we believe to all believers, to go into all the world and preach and teach and baptize. If, if we've seen that as a universal call, it's actually a universal send. We've been sent. As the Father has sent me, even so, send I you. If we're, if we're in the wave of the sent, if we're sent, then he sends us out every day. He sends us out, and life is not random. And our purpose is not random. It means that there is no Christian who should live their life feeling purposeless, without meaning, because he has not only called us to himself, he has sent us by the Spirit. And that sentness has a look to it. And it has almost a random look to it, but it's not. It's drenched with direction and intentionality. And it has very little to do with our jobs. It has to do with the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people that come across our path. And if we're just moving, you know, this inertia law thing that I talked about that I'm victim of, but if we're moving... It, it allows him more easily to steer us and for us to come across those people that need to hear from him today. That's what you see here. You see, uh, let's go on uh, here in Matthew 8. <clears throat> Where is that? He's at Peter's house. The multitudes come, verse 18, and he commanded his disciples to depart in the ship and they would go to the other side. Uh, but before he does that, a certain scribe comes. You see, it interrupts that. The scribe comes. He wants to talk. And you're thinking, rolling your eyes. Okay, we've got to go, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to get to the other side. <laughs> I'm trying to get over there, and you're, you know, you're, you're interrupting the flow. Christ doesn't do that. And, and the scribe says, I will follow you wherever you want me to go. And Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. And he said, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And in Luke 9, there's a third, there's a third interruption. And he says, you know, you cannot put your hand to the plow and look back. So that comes in here. And he was entered into the ship, and lo and behold, storm interrupts him. A natural event. Why is this happening? Why can't I just get to the other side? Even nature interrupts me. Not so. He spoke his peace to the wind, and the wind heard. He didn't see it as some something that he had to needlessly wrestle against. He was asleep in the boat, by the way. You know, he was, 
he, he was at peace. It was the disciples that didn't understand the construct of nature and the divine. <laughs> it, it is we who don't understand that. And so we see all of these natural calamities that come. And why is this happening? Why, is, why do we say why? Why do we ask why? It is a... <laughs> and it's a part of this fallen world, and we are to go through it. And we will hit these things. Uh, my children had world book Childcraft growing up, which y'all may not even know what that was. But they, they had this little journey section in it, you know, and you could, you could take one route this way and it would take you up in craggy places in the mountains and the hills. You'd take this other route, it would take you by the alligators and the swamps. And there was always something that each decision created another obstacle and another problem. Well, that's our life. The key is to see God in it. I don't do anything except that I see the Father do it. Christ saw God in all of this. It's all about trust. It's all about trust. And, and letting that trust control your walk. It is about trust. And it's moment to moment. It's moment to moment. Like And, and, and that's because we've, we wind up as human beings, as our human nature uh, dictates us to do, trusting in something else other than God. And so these little monkey wrenches come in to upend our trust in our what is predictable, our trust in our savings account, our trust in our job, to trust Him. It, it, goes, it, it just recalibrates whom we're see, what we're seeing and whom we're trusting. So you see, you see all the interruptions, and then he gets, uh, you know, out of the boat, and here's the demoniac. Um, you go on over to, and, and I'm, I'm just going to give these references to you. Uh, Luke 8 uh, is another uh, one of these scenes where um, um, the um, Jairus has come, who is a leader in the synagogue, and his daughter is grievously ill. Christ, like he did with the centurion, said, I will come. And Jairus didn't have quite the faith of the, the Roman centurion, Gentile. <laughs> um, and, and so Christ was on a, an emergency run. And here is this woman who's touched the hem of his garment in the midst of this crowd of people that's jostling him as he's going to Jairus' house. And the woman's physical need is met, she is healed, and Christ knows it because he feels the power leave him. That's why he had to retreat back up into the hills so often, uh, because he had to get his power replenished. Actual power left him every time he healed. And at first I thought it was just this one, but if you start looking, there are many places where it talks about the power leaving him when he healed. So he felt the power leave him. He knew somebody had been healed. Go on. No, he stops. He takes time. He lingers moment by moment. What the need was in that, it, the immediate need was what he would minister to. The interruption, there was a need there. And it was not just a need for physical healing. It was a need for public and social healing. 
of this woman who had been an outcast for 12 years and shunned for 12 years. Then word comes that his daughter is dead. Never mind, you don't have to come. She's dead. He continues to come. But it's the interruption. It's the flow. He, he takes the need at hand and sees that as from his father. Yes. And we don't look at the loss as Jesus looked at them. Yeah. He didn't say, okay, where are you coming from? What's your background? Who are you? He just healed them. Yeah. And even the, the Pharisees asked, why, do you, why does your teacher associate with men like this? And he says, because people who are well don't need a doctor, it's sick people who do. There we are. The, his father was there with the sick. He had come. For the sick, to seek and to save the lost. He'd not come for those rich cats who had no need. He had not come for those socially secure people of the Jewish line who had it all right and had even got to write a lot of the laws, not just know the laws. He didn't come for them. And for me, I have to be really careful because if they talk like the laws, I, I, shy, I, I back away from them. Yeah. Yeah. No, he didn't. In fact, it, to the degree that uh, he was so with them that his family thought he had lost his mind. Mark 3. I read that a couple years ago, too, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Not that I hadn't read it before. It just came alive. His family thought he had lost his mind. So uh, uncles or cousins went to get him. And uh, then in just a few verses on over, he doesn't go with them, obviously. His mother and brothers then come and knock on the door. And word is sent that your mother and brothers are there. And his answer seems kind of curt. Well, it's because he knows that they think he's gone crazy probably from the wilderness experience because this happened right at, at the very beginning of his ministry. So he, he didn't uh, dovetail into the expectations anymore. He had until it was time for him to be sent into the world. And that's why it was probably so startling for his mother to try to figure out what had happened here in the wilderness because he had gone into the wilderness the perfect son, the perfect, dutiful child, in, in, in which at age 12, the rabbis, the scholars, were astonished by him, astonished at his wisdom. He was a child prodigy. And, and in Nazareth, I'm sure, Everyone knew this was some amazingly brilliant spiritual prodigy because he was approved in Jerusalem. And so the reputation of this magical child who was dutiful in every way growing up 
growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He had that favor until he went into the wilderness. And when he came out of the wilderness, he was a changed man. He was in the face of the church leaders in his hometown of Nazareth, where his mother was so proud to take him to church every Sunday or whenever it was he went to church uh, <laughs> on the Sabbath. I mean, you've got to understand. Mary's probably trying to figure out. He was lost in the wilderness for 40 days. She didn't know what was going on, I imagine. And he comes out and he's, you know, he had probably looked like John the Baptist in steroids. You know, I, you know, just wild hair, wild beard, gaunt. And he's making his way, and she's getting worried. He's making his way to Jerusalem, and crowds of people are flocking around him because maybe there's miracles happening. And then he goes straight into to, uh, the synagogue at Nazareth, reads this prophecy from Isaiah 61, and he says, this is fulfilled in me right now in, in your hearing. He claims to be son of God, divine. And then he rails against the church leaders that had gushed over him and adored him. Seen him as a child prodigy, he's in their face. And he says, it is, it, it, God could find more faithful people in Tyre, in Sidon. And they try to throw him over a cliff and kill him. <laughs> but all of that was doing what he saw his father do. He didn't get constrained by the boxes of reputation or of expectations or of what was righteous and good by man's version. And that is, Patty, what you're talking about. That is what we have to look at and say, I need to move with what God tells me to do no matter what people think. I need to move with the wind. I need to let my schedule be conducted by God and trust that he is conducting it. And the only way I can know that is if I walk yielded. I walk surrendered. Trusting that he can make up the efficiency difference, the efficiency lack uh, in my schedule and my needs if I just do what he tells me to do. I move in and out of that. Uh, sometimes I have it, and when I do, there's a flow and there's a peace, and other times I'm finding myself resisting the interruptions. Christ went with the wind. It was a holy wind. We're not to go with our own wind. We're not to go with our own wiring, as you've said, Betsy. Some of us are wired to go like that. And that's not necessarily God's will either. Uh, because we may not get things done that he really is wanting us to do. We may not ever set our face toward Jerusalem, still be wandering out there long after the party's over. Yeah. Uh, yes. Now, here again, I mean, you can't. I'll be honest, I found it hard being around 
It is. Because they are, I mean, there's some, I mean, that just, it's really difficult. Well, and, and you never have a formula here with Christ and with God. You don't. Because there's a place in Matthew 18, 15, where he says, if, um, if you have a problem with someone, you know, go and, and talk with them. If they won't hear you, go and talk with them again and, and bring some others with you, witnesses, and, and come again a third time. There comes a time, he says, in which you shake the dust from your feet. When he, when he, um, when he sent the disciples out um, to heal, to go before him and prepare the way, and to heal the sick and all of that in, in Luke 9 and in Luke 10, he tells them there, there will be some cities that won't receive you. And uh, if they won't receive you, take your peace with you. Don't leave your peace there, whatever that means. And shake the dust off the, the feet of those communities that won't receive you. Don't try to stay there. Leave. So I think what he's saying here is don't let the world rob you of your peace. And if someone or something is robbing you of your ability, and, and this may have to do with growth that you need within yourself, but don't necessarily hang in there when your whole internal mechanism is, is off kilter, it's, it's bringing you into depression or into uh, you've lost your peace. You may need to separate yourself out and distance yourself. There are other times when I think he will require us not to do that, but to stay in attention. That's why it's not a formula. That's why every situation, where is God in this and what is he asking of me? What he asked of me last year, he may not ask of me this year in the same situation. Yes. <laughs> yes, and being just yielded to the Lord and seeking Him, and eventually we can learn to walk in the Spirit. Yes, yes, and there'll just be a sense in our in our deep down place in us, and we'll we will have learned not to question that. He will show us what we can, what we can uh, receive as from Him, and what is of us. And that's part of our walk, is learning what is of our own voice that we don't listen to and what is his voice that we do listen to. And eventually, as you walk in the Spirit, you can know as you go. Separating soul from spirit. Yes, exactly, as Watchman Nee says, separating soul from spirit. Um, I had a whole bunch more to do, but we're two-thirds of the way from doing it. One-third of the way through the lesson today. But I, I think we've got... We have seen this wind walker, this one who walked with the wind, and who asked you and me to do the same thing. Uh, I'm going to stay on this for a time or two. I want to go on over into the book of Acts and, and look at how the first century church began to do this and play this out in their lives. Um, we'll finish some, some pictures here in the life of Christ next week. But... As the Father sent him into this world, even so sends he us into this world. As he was sent, you and I are sent. He can't send those who have not 
he's not called. And he can't send those who have not answered his call to follow. Many are called, few are chosen. The ones who are chosen for him to send into the world are the ones who have answered the call to come, the call to follow. The call that the Levites answered of Moses in chapter 32 of Exodus when Moses said, who will be on the Lord's side? He asked all 12 tribes who will be on the Lord's side. Only the tribe of Levi answered that and came to him. And they were chosen as the priesthood because of that. He calls everyone to come to him. The call goes out to everyone to follow him. He sends only those who answer the call to follow. But he sends us into the world as he was sent. And that is to be like the wind. No one knows where it's coming from or where it's going. Only the Father. And he breathes his spirit, his wind, into your soul and into your world. And he says, go. Did you want to say something? Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wind, the Holy Spirit that moves like a holy breath upon our lives and through our lives. I ask that you bring a clarity in our spirit and in our soul on what that needs to look like in us, how we need to be how you would have us be. Help us to step out to a different rhythm here in our lives. Help us to garner your wisdom and your mind in knowing how in this 21st century American community in which we live, how to be wind walkers with you. I pray this in the name of Christ, who is our wisdom and our peace. Amen.